If you were not able to make it last week, or perhaps this is your first time here, uh, we made a pretty major announcement last week about the future of our facility and the use of our facility and some renovations and remodeling that's going to be taking place. And so if you weren't able to be here and you want to learn more, um, that message is available online. Uh, there's a link on our Facebook. You can access that. If you want a summary, uh, this booklet is available at the Welcome Center just out here in the main lobby, also at the Hub, and you can go over just the, the major points of what we announced last week. On the back of that, parents, uh, there's also a, kind of a schedule of where children and students will be meeting in the midst of the different remodels and renovations that are taking place in our facility. Uh, so please, if you want to know more, uh, grab one of these. If for some reason we don't have enough wherever you go to get one, uh, find someone wearing one of the blue shirts that just asks you how can they help on the back. It, it has hope written on the front. They're part of our guest services team. Uh, they're there to serve you and to help you, and they'll let the office staff know uh, if, if we can get how to get more of these so that you can have one. Um, it may, it may, may be till uh, next week or tomorrow or something, but hopefully we have enough for you. In your bulletin, we have also uh, what we're calling a commitment card that simply lists our next uh, initiative on it. We're calling this initiative to raise the additional $425,000 for these projects, the next initiative. Uh, we challenged you last week to be praying, God, how can I sacrifice beyond my regular giving, beyond my faith promise giving to missions? And so as the Lord moves in your heart, if you would use one of these cards, uh, fill out the left-hand side, and uh, you can mark anonymous if you don't want to put your name on there, and just list your commitment and turn that into us, either through the offering plate or place it in one of the white baskets at the back of the room. Uh, if you would like to track your own pledge, maybe you use the Alexio app that we have for our church, uh, you, you track your giving there, um, then you go ahead and if you, if you write your name down, you will be able to activate the pledge function on your giving and you can track where you're at uh, with your commitment. Uh, write your commitment, keep the right-hand side for yourself, and, uh, and then just begin to pray how God will supply uh, what you plan to give. We'll have these available again next week in the bulletin. As we embark on something as big as this, I wanted to share with you a letter I received uh, this week. Uh, I've been doing this uh, full-time in, in ministry as a minister, as a pastor, whatever name you choose to call me, um, preacher, uh, other things that I don't want to mention. But um, uh, and I've gotten lots of anonymous letters over the years. Uh, emails um, from addresses that don't exist, and people share their questions, their concerns. Sometimes they're really good, sometimes they're uh, painful. Uh, th this was a really good anonymous letter, and I wanted to share part of it with you. It simply begins, Dear uh, Pastor Craig, I am an occasional visitor to LCC, uh, maybe a handful of times in the last 17 years. I was there on September 9th uh, to hear about all the plans for building and renovation. The amount of money seems immense, almost a million dollars. LCC has been wise to set aside money in the past several years for this purpose. Uh, 425000 seems much more doable, but still a lot of money. It's an investment, though, and one made through prayer and serving in Almighty God. The writer goes on to say, I am enclosing a donation of $425. This is 1% of the 42500 which represents 10% of the total needed. I pray that 10% can be raised right out of the gate, and I want to plant a seed to help accomplish that first goal. 
And the writer goes on to share about how in a time of crisis in their life, um, Harry Pitts, who was the first minister at Lebanon Christian Church, and our church family was there to come alongside them. The writer says, I believe that through wise use of your property and buildings, LCC is making an investment in the community by being better able to serve and love and grow and preach the gospel. What I find incredibly inspiring and encouraging about this is a person who's been here to worship with us only a handful of times in 17 years, nearly two decades, uh, sees the vision and is excited about what God is doing and says, you know what, I want to be a part, and they make a generous gift. You may not be aware, uh, last Sunday, um, as people turn in connection cards and stuff and they go in these white baskets, uh, we uncovered a makeshift envelope, someone who was here to visit, just simply visit family from out of town. This is not their family they worship with, made this makeshift envelope and gave our very first gift to the next initiative. People who are captivated by what God is doing here and they say, man, I want to be a part of this. I share those stories because I think that if people who are just checking in on the journey that's happening at LCC can be so motivated and encouraged by God's spirit to be involved, then it just leaves me excited as I anticipate what's next for us and what will take place over the coming months. So as you pray about your involvement in the next initiative, uh, here's my wholehearted trust that God's spirit will move in that. Uh, again, we're challenging not equal gifts, uh, but equal sacrifice. And I know as we do that, God will be honored and praised. Um, if you're paying attention to Facebook, you can see that the kids' auditorium remodel is well underway, and uh, we'll continue to update with some pictures along the way, so you can be ready for that exciting transition that's up ahead as we get ready to prepare this space for more exciting ministry in the future. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, as we sing songs of praise to you, as we celebrate the life and the death, the resurrection of your son through the Lord's Supper. As we speak about giving and building, Lord, may we do so understanding that you are our maker and you are sovereign and you are perfect. And so may we tread with great reverence. Teach us to be humble. Help us to walk in the ways of truth to do what's right. Father, as we move into your word, um, teach us, God. Uh, teach us through some ancient words that speak timeless truth. Draw us into your life. Convict us, inspire us, challenge us as only you can through your incredible power. God, just I pray for anyone in this room who came searching this morning for hope and purpose and meaning in life, that, God, they will encounter you and they will leave with hope, uh, hope that is um, inextinguishable, hope that can't be washed away, hope that stands the test of time and may their lives be filled with purpose because of you and what you've done. Uh, guide us in these next several minutes together, Father, and it's in your name uh, I ask these things. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, 1884, uh, I hear it was a good year. Um, 
I wasn't around. A man named Carl Elsiner finished up an apprenticeship at a cutler in a nearby city. He decided to found his own cutler shop where they would fabricate knives and scissors and razor blades, had a small team, and so they began making these things over the course of a few years. And in 1886, two years later, a government official came to Carl's business. Uh, he said, Carl, would you be interested, and your team interested, in, in making uh, single folding blades for the military? And Carl said, yeah, we'll take on that challenge. And so they started making and uh, fashioning these single fold blades. In 1889, uh, military officials came back and they said, Carl, here's the deal. We've just uh, given a whole new rifle to our infantry and it requires a screwdriver to undo to get it completely cleaned out. Is there any way you can incorporate a screwdriver into this folding knife that you have? And he said, well, let me go to work. And they, they went to work. In 1891, the very first named Swiss Army knife uh, was given. At that time, it wasn't just a folding blade, it wasn't just a screwdriver, but it had this little um, awe of sorts that could route out the buttonholes in the soldiers' shirts to make sure they fit right. The Swiss Army knife has carried on a rich tradition. I would guess that in a room this size, some of you have one right now. It's considered by many to be the very first multi-tool. Uh, multi-tools have kind of risen in provenance over the last several years. Uh, one of the leading companies in the multi-tool industry is Leatherman. Maybe you've seen one of these. People have like a little leather pouch or, uh, you know, some type of, of, of canvas pouch on their, their hip. And it's got this like pliers that have within them fire starters and saw blades and scissors and screwdrivers and, and, and small knives. I would guess that many of you have a multi-tool. In fact, I'll just ask, how many of you in the room have some sort of multi-tool? Whether it's a Swiss Army knife, Leatherman, knockoff, whatever it is. Yeah, lots of you. Uh, my first multi-tool was this. It was a Rambo knife. Um, when the movie came out in the 80s, and I know some of you weren't even born in the 80s, you weren't born until the 90s, but this movie Rambo was out with Sylvester Stallone, and he had this incredible knife. I think it was about this long, and there was a round handle with a compass at the end, and you could screw the compass off. It was hollow inside, watertight, and inside, I found it at a garage sale. There were matches, uh, fish hooks, twine, fishing line, all those things that every eight-year-old boy needs, right? And, uh, and so I took it home. Unfortunately, I didn't really use it because mom had an issue with me sharing a room with my younger brother and having a large knife with matches and fish hooks and uh, fishing line in it. But it was my first multi-tool. Like, it, it could have saved our family. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, when, when, when you think of multi-tools, I'll just tell you, if, several of you didn't raise your hand. Like last worship experience service, like almost everybody had their hand up. So several of you don't have a multi-tool yet. So I, I'm going to give you some really good information, I promise you. If you don't have a multi-tool, we actually have a business in Lebanon that if you make a very small purchase, will give you a free multi-tool. I am not kidding. All right, so if you don't have a multi-tool and you want one, just don't rush them all at once in case they run out. Um, take out your, 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 if you're writing, taking notes, or if you have your phone, uh, put this name of a business in. K-F-C. <laughs> if you go to KFC, they have a multi-tool for you. They call it a spork. It looks like a spoon. 
it has some prongs because we all know that um, it's way too inconvenient to use both a fork and a spoon when you're eating your mashed potatoes and your chicken. And so you can have a multi-tool. So if you don't have one, go buy some popcorn chicken and, uh, and get yourself a multi-tool and then you will be set for the rest of your life. All kidding and sarcasm aside, uh, multi-tools really have a market because there's just something about having something that performs a variety of functions for you. And as we're in this series looking at the Word of God, uh, here's what I want you to consider. Could God's Word be the greatest multi-tool available to us? In our series looking at the importance of the Word of God, we've, we've tried to give you single words or pictures to hold on to that, that help in some way, um, they can't completely capture, but in some way capture the, the greatness of what God has done in revealing His truth and His plans and His purposes, His directives for us as His people. Uh, we talked about the weight of the Word, W-E-I-G-H-T, just that weight the significance of God's word. Uh, we've talked about longing for the word. Uh, we've looked at the seed of God's word. What happens when God's words uh, find good soil in our hearts and they're able to germinate and grow? What type of harvest comes out of our life? And, and today I want you to think about God's word in terms of a multi-tool. Something that possesses a variety of of things that can help us. Now, I don't want you to hear this. I don't want you to hear that I think that God's word simply is a multi-tool. Um, but we do know from 2 Timothy that God's word is useful. And so what are some of the things that it's useful for? Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 119 this morning. So if you have a Bible, if you'd find Psalm 119, uh, we're kind of just be living in this one chapter in the Psalms. Here's what I'll tell you, is that if you have a hard copy of the Bible, you should feel no shame if you don't know where Psalm 119 is. Uh, there is a reason why publishers include a table of contents. So you can go there and you can find the word Psalms and you can find the page number and you can go to that. Um, you don't have to be able to just open up your Bible to the right page. If you don't have a hard copy of the Bible, maybe you prefer digital. Um, this is my preferred way. I like writing. I like highlighting. I like making notes so that I can come back later and say, wow, this is how this word impacted me. But if you prefer digital, um, that's fine. Open up your Bible app on your phone. If you don't have a hard copy or you don't know what a Bible app is, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Look around you and find someone nearby who's either reading from a hard copy like this or a, or a digital Bible and just peek over their shoulder. I know that we are good Midwesterners. We like our happy space. Um, but, but it's okay when we're going to learn the timeless truth of Scripture to lean in. If, if you have a digital device and you don't maybe have a Bible app, this is the first time you heard that they have those, then uh, if you would, just open up your web browser and go to www.biblegateway.com. It's a really cool resource. You can type into the search bar, Psalm 119, hit enter, and all Psalm 119 is right there for you. In fact, it's a great way to have the Bible with you wherever you go if you don't have your uh, hard copy with you. By the way, I didn't mention this last service, but if you don't have a hard copy of the Bible and you want one, um, there's a shelf right outside these doors with a, a number of Bibles on it. Just take one with you. Um, if, if, as I mentioned, study Bibles later, you can't afford one, please 
uh, come talk to me. Seek out, again, one of our people in a blue shirt. You can let them know who you are. They'll let me know, and we'll make sure that you have a Bible uh, that you can read and learn these incredible things from. So Psalm 119, because I want you to be in the Word with me this morning, I'm not going to have the verses on the screen. I want you to kind of take this journey along with me uh, to discover uh, just the wealth that's here in this multi-tool together. Before I jump in, though, I want to give you a little bit of background. Uh, Psalm 119, uh, an Old Testament scholar, his name is Derek Kidner, uh, he calls Psalm 119 the precious jewel of the Word. The precious jewel of the Word. John MacArthur, who is a preacher and author, he says that Psalm 119 is the Mount Everest of the Psalms. Two powerful images. Why would they use those? When we think about the precious jewel of the word, I think about uh, valuable precious stones. We have some stones in the world. The graph diamond is one of them that they can't even put a value on because it's just so pristine, so beautiful, so valuable. I, I, I can't put a number on it. When we think about the words of Psalm 119 and all that they declare about God's words and instructions, you really can't put a number on it. It's invaluable. The Mount Everest of the Psalms, uh, when you think about climbing and mountains and pinnacles that people want to summit, uh, Mount Everest is kind of that, uh, the, the ultimate achievement. Um, I've climbed at Turkey Run, so I'm a little ways away from Mount Everest, but if I was a climber, Mount Everest is the place I'd want to be. There's just something so majestic about it, so uh, incredible about it. And what you'll find is Psalm 119 is that way. There's this crowning achievement. It's a literary masterpiece. I don't know if we have any literature fans in the room, but as God inspires the, the psalmist, he crafts the psalm that is 176 verses long. It's the longest chapter in your Bible. Those 176 verses are divided into eight, 22, eight verses each, 22 sections. Each of those 22 sections corresponds to a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's why maybe in your Bible, as you see a Hebrew character, a letter there with uh, the word for that letter. It's what we call an acrostic. Maybe you remember this. Maybe you didn't want to remember this from elementary school, middle school, high school. But chances are at some point, your teacher probably had you either write your name and you put your letters down in order and you write a little sentence about that begins that first letter of your name, the second letter of your name, the third letter of your name. Craig, crazy. R, ridiculous. A, annoying. I, you know, whatever it is that you're going to craft, right? You're, you're acrostic. And, and so what the psalmist does is, is, is he takes every letter of the Hebrew alphabet but here's what he does even more than that. He starts with the first letter, and then all eight lines begin with that same Hebrew letter. Next Hebrew letter, all eight lines, that same Hebrew letter. Next letter, all eight lines. And in a way, he's communicating that God's word is just incredibly supreme from beginning to end. And while I could tell you there's 2,300 words in Psalm 119, I could give you other fast facts all of those pale when it comes to what makes this psalm so incredible. What makes this psalm so incredible is what it reveals about God's words. So many different terms are used to speak of God's words. We have the term word, uh, precept, 
command, instruction, law, and the list goes on and on on all meaning what God has spoken, what God has revealed, what God has told. And the psalmist begins mining these to say, this is all that the word of God is. And so I just want to show you a few of those functions that the multi-tool of the word is. The first is this, is that uh, the word of God directs and guides. It's one of its greatest functions, to direct us and to guide us. One of the most famous verses in Psalm 119 is Psalm 105. You may be familiar with it. If you look at Psalm 105, it's hanging out beneath the woman with the habit on her head. Just, my Bible says none. I'm just sharing that. Um, some jokes don't work. <laughs> Psalm 105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. When you think about that image of a lamp, um, this clay dish with some fuel and a flame that would cast this glow down about the feet and shine the way, uh, it's, it's not a hard picture to grasp, is it? That God's word has a way of casting a glow and showing uh, where to walk and, and how to live. God's word directs and it guides. If you move up a little bit to verse 104, the psalmist writes, I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. That there's something within the words of God that, that help him understand more. It also helps him choose what's right versus what's wrong. In the word of God, directing and guiding. Verse 130 speaks similarly. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. The God's word help us know. God's words help us see. Directs and guides. I think one of the primary ways God's word directs and guides is how it helps us when it comes to um, navigating life's choices and avoiding the pitfalls of sin. Another famous verse from Psalm 119 is verse 11. Well, the psalmist writes, I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you. I, I've tucked your words away. So when I'm confronted with choices that seem so appealing, when the, when the desires of my heart start to rage wildly, then, then your word protects me. As I read about crimes and theft, one of the things that I, I've read is that often when thieves break into a home, one of the first places they go is to a bedroom to the dresser drawers. Uh, why? Because often people will hide valuables in those doors, in those drawers. Why do we hide our valuables in these, in these dresser drawers? It's because we know that when the time comes and we're in desperate need, we can go back and we can grab what we need. Why is it that the psalmist hides the words of God in his heart? Why is it that he meditates on them? Why is it that he stores them up? It's because when the challenges come and they come, that he has something to help him in that time of need. Verse 9, if you rewound a little bit more in the psalm. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? 
he asked the question, I memorized it this way as a kid, how can a young man keep his way pure? And he answers it. How? By living according to your word. So somehow the psalmist says, your words, they guide me and help me live this pure life. Do you hear the, the, how, how God's word is useful for direction and, and, and guidance? It's part of the multi-tool of his word. Or, or maybe that's not enough to convince you. Psalm, 130, Psalm 119, verse 133. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. God's word, useful to direct and to guide. But that's not all. Another useful way that God's word is used is to comfort and to strengthen. And I don't know about you, uh, but as I navigate life, there are many times I need comfort and I need strengthened. If you look at verse 28... My soul is weary with sorrow. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, uh, but I think it's a pretty good guess that there are some of you in this room whose soul is weary with sorrow. Uh, your soul is just overwhelmed with sorrow. And if you're not there, many of you in this room, because I know some of your stories know what it's like to be weary with sorrow. But yet, what does he say? Verse 28, my soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to what? Your word. Somehow, your instructions, God, like when I am suffering, when the, when the weight of grief is weighing on me, you strengthen me. What about verses 50 through 52? My comfort and my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me unmercifully. Translation, mean people mess with me. <laughs> but I do not turn from your law. I remember, Lord, your ancient laws, your ancient instructions, and I find comfort in them. Like the psalmist is on this journey and he's saying, listen, when life is really hard, when I'm suffering, when I'm weary with sorrow, your words, your promises, they strengthen me, they comfort me. He looks back and he says, yes, life is hard right now, life is difficult right now, but I remember what you said, God. I remember all that you've spoken. I know that you're faithful. I know what they declare about you is true. And so I'm strengthened and I'm comforted in the midst of of the harsh and the hard and the difficult and the strain. The multi-tool of the word, to direct and to guide, to, to comfort and to strengthen. But there's more. Um, throughout the psalm, from beginning to end, all 176 verses, there's this recurring theme of delight and joy. Delight and joy. Verses 14 through 16. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Let's just stop there for a moment and be honest. Like, 
If you've ever received a great gift from somebody, if you've ever been surprised with that perfect present, if maybe a check showed up in the mail that was just some extra money, I know it doesn't happen to all of you, but it's happened to many of you. Do you remember how excited you were? If you can't get excited about that, I mean, think back to when you were a child and you anticipated this, this one gift and on that one birthday or that one Christmas, like that parent, that grandparent, that aunt, that uncle came through and like, do you remember how excited you were about those riches? Has that same excitement ever been mirrored in what you experience in the Word of God? Rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. I delight. I find so much joy in what you've spoken, God. Verse 47. For I delight in your commands because I love them. This is just touching. I, I, did a, I did a brief count as I read through the 176 verses, and I came up with 11 places where it simply says that I delight in your words for some reason. And that doesn't even include that this is the psalm where the words are contained. Your words are sweeter to my taste than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. We had some friends when we were living in Ohio who had a small, um, I don't know what you call them, colony maybe of bees. If that's not right, then tell me later. Uh, but they had bees in this wooden box. And those bees would build comb and produce all kinds of honey. And in the fall of the year, he would put it in this big extractor, insert the combs, and, and they would just make that thing spin. And the, the honey would, would shoot out to the sides. And, and in the process, sometimes some of the comb would break off and, and he would give it to us to taste. And it was so good. It was so sweet. And the psalmist says, that's what your words are like. They're sweeter to my taste than honey on the honeycomb. Do you know that in Hasidic Jewish uh, families still to this day, when young boys, they're conservative Jews, when young boys are growing up and they're learning the Old Testament, specifically Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, rabbis will still come to them and place honey on their tongue and say, his words are sweeter to your taste than even honey on the honeycomb. God's words, sweeter, delight, joy. So I think about the multi-tool of the word that it directs and guides, that it strengthens and comforts, that it brings delight and joy. I'm just amazed. Here would be my challenge to you this week, one of the challenges. Make 119, Psalm 119, part of your reading this week. Maybe, maybe take this afternoon or maybe tomorrow and during a break uh, and, and read all 176 verses from beginning to end. Just read them. Just consume them. And then spend the rest of the week taking it in sections. Maybe you do three sections a day over seven days and, and add a fourth on the final day. So all 22 sections are read. And I want you just to make your own list. What are all the different things that the psalmist says the word of God does and is to him? Because these three things, the, the direction or the guidance, the comfort, the strength, the, the joy and the delight, they're, they're, just, they're just scratching the surface. Uh, like John Mark, MacArthur said, it is the Mount Everest of the Psalms. It is the precious jewel of the word. That's my initial challenge. But, but beyond that, 
I hope God will share something with you in the next few minutes that just rocks your world. Do you know that when the psalmist pens these words about the word of God, as lofty of languages he uses, that the only words that he has available to him are the words contained in the books of Moses? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He has the stories of, of, of God's creation. He, he's, he's heard the stories of the covenant with Noah and the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses. He's heard the stories of the, the reckless wanderings in the desert by rebellious people and God's redemption and his rescue. He's heard all those stories and he looks back on the first five books of the Bible and he says, those are the words that are sweeter to my taste. Those are the words that I delight in. Those are the words that strengthen me and they come for me as they tell me the story of God. Those are the words. How much more, how much more should we delight? Should we find comfort? Should we be directed? Because not only do we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we have the words of the prophets. We have the words of the poets. The words like Psalm 119. We have the words of the gospel writers, eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, who share the stories of his miraculous saving of humanity, his love, his, his peace. We have the words of a man like Paul who travels the Roman world sharing the gospel and on the way we get to eavesdrop and learn how to live. We have the words of John inspired by a vision of God in a prison cell. And that vision communicates one overwhelming point. Stay faithful. Because of King Jesus, you triumph in the end. How much more? Oh, and by the way, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Not only do we have written words that communicate about God, the incredible story that he's been writing since the beginning of time, this rescue story, and not only can we find our place in that story, but ultimately, all of that story points to one, the living word named Jesus. God's only son. And these words tell that story. You want to talk about direction? These words direct us to our maker and his incredible acts of mercy on our behalf. How he saw us in our despair and in our sin and our separation from God. And he knew that we could not work our way. There was no, no, no amount of good things that we could do to earn our way back to a right standing with God. And because we couldn't build that bridge for ourselves, he sent his son to make the bridge for us. So that as we believe and as we trust in him, which are told in this story, which are lived out in the life of Christ, that we could have life. That we could be saved as we believe in him. How much more? We have so much more than just the words of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Can we talk about direction and guidance? These words not only show us who Jesus is, they show us how to follow him. They show us how to live in the midst of his amazing kingdom. They show us how to have healthy relationships, how to discover purpose in life, how to find freedom from the bondage of sin. These words... Jesus says of himself that he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, 
but he came to fulfill them. All the scriptures point to him. He tells the Pharisees, you study them diligently. This is John chapter 5, because you think that in them you have life. But what you miss is that they actually point to me. These words that direct and the guide, these words that comfort and sustain, these words that delight, they do that because they point us to Jesus. That should get us excited. It's God's word, the multi-tool. You want to talk about comfort and strength? It's these words that remind us, even as we encounter tragedy and trial and overwhelming sorrow, that we are more than conquerors, is what Paul says, through him who loved us, Jesus. It's these words that tell us, through Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, that we do not grieve as those who have no hope because we have Christ who has overcame death. It's these words that tell us that even in the midst of things that seem not to make sense and, and seem, things that seem to overwhelm, that all things really will work to the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. It's these words, the Mount Everest of the Psalms, you want to talk about joy and delight. Jesus says in John 10.10 10, that the thief, speaking of the enemy, comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But he says, but I have come that you might have life, and have life in all its fullness, in all of its abundance, life overflowing, that eternal life that only God provides. Talk about delight. Here's something that I've come to understand and God is working on in my life is that many of us, myself included, uh, often struggle to find joy and contentment in every moment. In our society filled with so much abundance, it's amazing how in so many of our lives a black hole of discontent uh, is, is present. So, so how do we find joy? His word points us there. It's in Jesus who reminds us of what our true purpose is. It's in Jesus who reminds us that wealth and honor, all the things the world prizes, cannot make you more than you already are in the eyes of the God. There's joy and delight found within the word within the living word. How much more? The multi-tool of the word. So if you want to experience this amazing God whose story is told in page after page after page, where do you begin? Well, with any multi-tool, you've got to open it, right? You've got to begin reading its pages, mining its content, allowing God to speak into your life as you read word after word after word. If you, if you don't possess a Bible again, one of the greatest things I feel like I can tell you is get a copy of the Word of God and start reading it. Um, start reading the Gospels that tell the story of Jesus. Read a simple book like James that tell a story about some practical ways to live. Uh, read through the Proverbs that, that give some incredible advice 
um, that's rooted in this idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, that's the theme of the book of Proverbs, by the way. And start reading. As you start reading, as you believe in Jesus in faith, you trust that what God has done in him is real and that he died for you and you enter into his life. As you're baptized, his spirit fills you and he begins to help you see. As it begins to help you see, you keep studying the Word of God. And this is a lifetime of studying the Word. It's note after note and scribble after scribble and highlight after highlight. As time over time, He continues to teach you even through things you thought you already knew. And as you study, you begin to be drawn deeper and deeper and deeper into this mystery of this God who's living and active among us. I'm going to give you a helpful hint, I hope. Um, there's a, a man, his name's Alexander Campbell, who was influential within the body of Christ, the church, Christianity, in the early part of our nation's history. In fact, he had an overwhelming passion that the church would not be characterized by denominations, but that we would unite around essentials and give freedom in matters of opinion, and that we would just pursue Jesus Christ him crucified, proclaim that in the life that's found in him. And as he, he taught people, he, he spoke about how to read the Bible and he talked about uh, working through the hearing distance or the understanding distance. Um, I had a professor that asked me to kind of try to take what he was sharing about this philosophy of a hearing distance and put it in chart form. And so this is what I came up with. And, and what it simply says is that as we go to the word of God, there's a distance that separates us from the truth. We, we know that God's words are timeless. Um, many of us have experienced that. But we also know that they were inspired in the hearts and minds of men that went out through their quills and their pens, right, uh, during a specific time in history. We know there were cultural differences, even though God's word transcends culture. We know there were language differences. It may surprise you, or probably doesn't, that uh, back when uh, David is penning psalms, he's not penning them in English. Um, he's, he's writing them in Hebrew. And so Alexander Campbell, this great leader, said, if we can be humble enough to say, listen, here are the essentials, who God is and what he's done, and I, over my lifetime, are going to humbly say, how can I learn more to transcend the distance of time, of culture, of language? How can I, through diligent study, keep learning? God will continue to make more and more uh, of his truth known to me. This doesn't mean you have to be a Hebrew or Greek scholar. It doesn't mean you have to have an elaborate library full of books that thick or thicker. But it means that if you have a practical tool like a study Bible, you can begin to look and, and cross-reference with words that were spoken here and how they were first spoken there. And, and you can see that, hey, if, if, if this happened in this time and space, then this influence is how I understand this passage. I'm going to give you just a, a really quick example um, of how when we humbly move through the hearing distance, God's word speaks with incredible truth. Um, great research in a study Bible is how I learned this, okay? I, I grew up in churches where when the preacher would preach on Revelation, his favorite passage was uh, in the Revelation passage where the angel is speaking to the churches. And there's this church in a city called Laodicea. And in that passage, it says, because you are neither hot nor cold, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
And so I grew up in these churches where the preacher would say, what he's saying is that if you're not hot, on fire for God, uh, I'd rather you be cold, don't care about him at all, but because you're kind of in between going through the motions, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And I heard preacher after preacher preach that, and I'm guessing that many of you in the room have heard that teaching taught that way. But do you know when you start digging through time and language and culture? This is through a study Bible. You learn that near Laodicea, there were two springs. One was hot and one was cold, and that was the water that people needed to draw from. You want to drink the cold water. You want to, you want to use the warm water for your bathing. Those are the waters. So he said, I'd rather you be this living water that has a purpose than be this lukewarm water that's stagnant that has no purpose. Well, that changes things, doesn't it? It's not about being on fire for God or being ice cold for God, but, oh, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. No, it's have a purpose. Be who God made you to be. Thrive in his living water and don't be caught in that stagnant water. And it all comes from just being humble enough to say, God, teach me. Teach me. Our hope is that during this journey of a lifetime, that you will just humbly continue to grow. And as you read the word, God teaches you things. Listen, if I can just be transparent for a moment. I became a follower of Jesus July 16th, 1989. For some of you, that's a really long time ago. Next year, I'll be journeying with Jesus 30 years. 30 years. The things that I know today, it's not what I knew 30 years ago, but it's just continuing to read his word, to pray that he teaches me to be diligent and study that God time over time shapes this. If, if you're just starting your journey of faith, I don't expect you to figure out what, what a spring in Laodicea is. Just read. And, and God will teach us and, and ask questions. And as you're diligent, God will add to your faith knowledge. And to knowledge, more obedience. It's the multi-tool of the word to direct and to guide, to comfort, to strengthen, to bring joy and delight. Every place where we use a metaphor to describe holy things, they come to a place where they break down. We often use multi-tools to get us by when we have a need. They're simply to survive, right? Um, because when we go on a backpacking trip, we, we, we don't want to throw a propane tank in our bag to help start a fire with. We, we're, we're not going to bring our whole knife set to make sure we, we cut up the venison just the right way. So we, we have our multi-tool. It helps us survive. But here's where the metaphor breaks down, because God's word is a multi-tool multi that won't just help you survive. It will enable you to thrive as it reveals to you his incredible mysteries and guides you in his truth. There's an incredible movement in the body of Christ right now. It shows up in the song we're about to sing. Uh, there's a movement to really understand who we are. Identity is a big word in culture. There's this beautiful movement in the body to remind us of who we are, who God says we are. So we have this anthem we've been singing, Who You Say I Am. Um, if you guys listen to music, there's another great artist, Lauren Daigle, who, who, who writes a song, You Say, like, like what you say about me, what you declare over me. 
We need the word of God because it teaches us what's true and so many things are trying to drive us away. So let's go to the multi-tool. Let's find direction and guidance. Let's be comforted and strengthened. Let's find joy and delight and discover who he says we are. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. God, I thank you for open hearts and listening ears. And Father, I pray that you would remind us of who you are, that you would teach us how to learn from your word, that God, you would teach us how to understand your truth, that we would approach it humbly, and along the way, you would shape us as your people, living a life of incredible victory. And it's in your name we pray, amen.